Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry, with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. The phrase litigation finance probably conjures up a variety of different images. Most typically, most of us think of it as something that's only used by plaintiff side personal injury attorneys who are looking to fund their cases prior to obtaining a settlement or judgment. But many law firms and their corporate clients are embracing using litigation finance. In fact, according to a recent report in 2021, 47 funders managed to combine $12.4 billion in assets for commercial litigation funding, and 41% of those total commitments were allocated to cases involving large law firms. To discuss this trend, my guest on today's show is Jason Levine. He's an investment manager and legal counsel at Omni Bridgeway, which is a publicly traded commercial litigation finance company with 21 offices worldwide. Jason leads the company's antitrust litigation initiative, and he also launched and leads its new Washington, D.C. office. Before Jason joined Omni Bridgeway, for over 20 years, he was a first chair trial lawyer who had tried cases at some of the largest law firms in the country. And now at Omni Bridgeway, he manages the full litigation financing lifecycle, including sourcing, evaluation, negotiating terms, and monitoring cases through to resolution. He prides himself on being a strategic partner, providing consultation on cases from beginning to end. Jason received his JD from Harvard Law School, and he served as a judicial law clerk to Judge Randall Rader on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Jason Levine, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dave. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, great. Well, let's all get on the same page and talk just, you know, very briefly about what litigation finance is. How would you describe uh, litigation financing? Well, first, I'd like us to get a little bit of terminology straight. You know, at the very top, you reference an example of what we would consider consumer litigation financing, personal injury attorney seeking financing for a personal injury matter. That's, just to be clear, a very different business than commercial litigation finance, which is the business Omni Bridgeway and I are in. In our view, commercial litigation finance involves sophisticated companies and law firms in commercial and business disputes rather than personal injury matters, workers' compensation cases, or the like. So it's an important distinction for us as an industry. And also, you know, commercial litigation finance uh, is not alone as might occur in consumer settings, and I'll explain that in a minute. At its heart, commercial litigation finance is a way for companies and law firms to turn legal claims and judgments into immediately revenue-generating assets at no out-of-pocket cost. Financing enables companies to eliminate litigation costs by obtaining third-party funding for legal fees and expenses in affirmative litigation where they're plaintiffs in exchange for an agreed-upon portion of a successful recovery that gets paid to the funder. Financing also allows law firms to monetize contingent fees 
by receiving payment for a portion of those fees from a funder as the case is being litigated, again, in exchange for an agreed-upon piece of the contingent fee that would be awarded at the end of a successful recovery. Both companies and law firms can also get working capital in exchange for part of the recoveries they obtain in cases, and financing can be done for single cases or for portfolios. And most importantly, commercial litigation finance is non-recourse. And this means that if the claimant or law firm loses the case or only gets a small recovery, the funder has no recourse against the claimant or the law firm that it's funding. The funder, in other words, bears the risk of non-payment of its agreed-upon return. So the only cost to the claimant or the law firm is a piece of their upside. There's no loan involved. There's no repayment obligation except from proceeds of a judgment or a settlement. And I'm happy also to talk a little bit about the most important terms in commercial litigation finance agreements, if I can do so. Really, I would say four terms are probably the most important. First is the amount to be funded in legal fees, in costs, or both. Different companies in this business have different thresholds for funding. Our typical minimum investment is a million dollars. Most of our investments are in the five to $10 million range, and we have some deals on the order of $20 million. Many other funders operate in smaller amounts. Uh, second, the return structure for the funder is crucial. It's usually some combination or variation on a multiple of invested capital and a percentage of the recovery, typically that increases over time to account for duration risk and the, the, the time value of money. Uh, it could also be the greater of a multiple or a percentage. And the return structure is where a lot of creativity and negotiation typically take place. Third, another important term is the priority of payment as among the funder, the law firm, and the claimant. We call that the waterfall. And it can have a lot of variation, although usually the funder will have some form of preference in being repaid first, at least the amount it invested. The waterfall really becomes important if the resolution of the case doesn't produce enough proceeds to pay everyone in full. Otherwise, it likely doesn't come into play. And then last, just again to repeat, is the non-recourse nature of the funding. Different types of cases will be priced differently based on factors like merits risk, duration risk, and the amount of funding at issue. Our arrangements are bespoke. This is definitely not a cookie-cutter business for Omni. And I would say, more holistically, what are the main benefits of litigation finance, you may ask? Really, I would say it's the fact that a company can take the cost and therefore the risk of affirmative litigation off their balance sheet. The litigation cost disappears as a budget line item. It doesn't impact legal department spend. The legal department can actually become a net revenue generator if the company has a sufficient number of affirmative claims. So litigation finance can help companies show higher net income, reduce their expenses, and advance strategic legal objectives, all at no cost out of pocket. Law firms can also monetize their contingent fees, smooth out their cash flows, and maximize realization, which has enabled a lot of law firms that are not structured around contingent fees to offer them to clients. And both companies and law firms can also get working capital at no out-of-pocket cost, again, collateralized only by a potential favorable outcome in litigation.
So that's all really interesting. Wanted to unpack a lot of that. You mentioned that the threshold amount for these commercial litigation cases to obtain litigation financing is typically a million dollars. Are there certain types of commercial cases that are the best fit for litigation financing? Because obviously the term commercial litigation encompasses a lot of different cases. Sure. And to be clear, the million dollars is not a million dollar recovery, but rather a million dollar minimum investment for us to make. We would have our own assessment of what a a relevant recovery range would be based on the amount we invest. There are a number of types of cases that tend to be really particularly amenable to financing. You know, general commercial litigation, business versus business, of course, is a general category. But more specifically, antitrust, particularly corporate opt-out or single plaintiff claims are very ripe for litigation financing because of their characteristics, the amounts in controversy, the duration, the complexity of those cases. International arbitration and intellectual property and patent disputes are also prime users of litigation financing. We also have expertise in insolvency matters where litigation financing can play a role, often for receivers, for example, and in insurance coverage disputes against large insurance companies. Plaintiffs will frequently seek financing for those cases. And then in addition, there is a special area where we have expertise that a lot of funders are not involved in, which is judgment enforcement, where we can assist companies that have judgments where the enforcement has become a problem, and we can step in and take that burden from them in exchange for a portion of what's recovered. And, you know, in addition, as a you might say it's a bit of a one-off, there are also monetizations of judgments and matters on appeal where a party may have a large judgment in its favor, but there's an appeal process underway that may take several years, and they seek instead to obtain value for it. Now, we take the risk of the appeal, and the party is essentially able to monetize it years before they might have a final decision. So you mentioned the judgment enforcement, which I thought was fascinating. As I understand it, does Omni Bridgeway actually do the judgment enforcement, or is that Is that something that you farm out to a different firm, or do you use the firm that originally was in the litigation? How does that process work? Well, Omni Bridgeway, and this is not my area of expertise, but Omni Bridgeway has a specific division that has expertise in judgment enforcement, in literally pursuing the judgment enforcement, and also in partnering with specialists in different locations around the world to assist in the effort. So we can essentially take over the judgment enforcement process or quarterback the judgment enforcement process as the case circumstances may dictate for a client where their law firm that prosecuted the case doesn't have that expertise, which frankly, most large law firms don't. Right. And that makes sense. So back to kind of the uh, more basics. So who typically comes to Omni Bridgeway? Is it typically a law firm or a client um, who is seeking the litigation financing? We are approached buy and have relationships both with ultimate clients and with law firms. I would say that probably the majority of the contacts are with law firms, whether on behalf of themselves or on behalf of their clients. And there's a very good mix, whether as between law firms versus clients that are being funded. But we tend to deal 
with law firms more often than the ultimate clients. Although ultimately, when we get into a matter where, where we're providing funding, we will definitely interact with the ultimate client frequently. We'll talk with their executives, their in-house counsel to really get a sense for them, for the matter, and ultimately have a relationship with them in addition to the law firm. Got it. And who who actually contracts with Omni Bridgeway, the law firm or the client, or is it sometimes, does it depend on, on the matter? Well, it will depend on the matter, but certainly we ensure that everyone who's impacted is aware of and consents to the arrangement. If it's ultimately with a client, for example, we will still seek to have the law firm enter into an agreement whereby it understands and agrees to the terms of payment between us and the client so there are no misunderstandings later. Okay. So my understanding is that, you know, at least from your bio, you were an equity partner at several large, large law firms before joining Omni in February of this year, 2022. Why did you decide to join a litigation financing company after being at these firms? Sure. And, and before joining Omni Bridgeway, I had been an equity partner at Austin and Bird. Before that, I had long stints as a, an equity partner at Vincent and Elkins and at McDermott, Will and Emery after having spent my formative years at Covington and Burling. For about 25 years, I had a kind of very well-trod traditional career path, and I was practicing commercial and antitrust litigation and trying cases at a high level in these very large cases. But frankly, I was looking for a new challenge after that period of time. And I had long found litigation finance to be a really compelling business. The more that I read and learned about it, the more interesting and exciting I found it. And this might sound kind of obvious, but my new role lets me combine my litigation experience with financial analysis and with deal-making in a new and I think a unique way. And the industry has just exploded over the past decade, particularly in the last few years, in terms of dollars invested and the scope of law firms and clients working with funders. And I really wanted to be a part of that. And we work with a lot of AMLAW 100 firms. Uh, we're constantly receiving new inquiries from firms of that caliber. And it's just an exciting time to be in litigation finance. So I consider the role that I was fortunate to have with Omni Bridgeway to be really a tremendous opportunity. We're a global leader in litigation finance. We have the largest and the most experienced team in the industry. We're growing rapidly and we have a large amount of available investment capital. So I think it's a great time to be in this business. I'm thrilled that I made this leap. Just curious as to sort of the views of law firm leaders on litigation finance. I mean, you obviously worked at some of the largest law firms in the world. And did you have an opportunity to work with litigation funders? And sort of what was the, the view of, uh, of the law firm leaders at the firms that, that you were at? I did help a few clients in efforts to seek out funding for cases when I was at Austin and Bird and Vincent and Elkins. And frankly, that was part of what got me interested in the business. I had seen it from the client side. And from my experience, forward-looking law firm leaders are, are very much inclined to work with litigation finance firms, given the benefits for clients and the opportunities that finance gives them to deepen their client relationships. It's really, when you think about it, a great business development tool even for very large law firms, and I think smart leaders recognize that. And I've had meetings with AMLAW 100 firm managing partners and CFOs 
where they're very eager to learn more and find ways to work together. And I think that more law firms are looking to companies like ours for two reasons. First, because their clients have come to recognize the benefits and they're trying to do more with less, particularly since the Great Recession. And they're demanding more than ever that law firms work with litigation finance companies. And second, I think the law firms themselves realize that they can decrease their fee and payment risk. They can maximize realization for themselves through financing arrangements with the firms. I mean, nowadays, if a large law firm doesn't have a good relationship with at least one reputable litigation finance company, or if it's ignorant about the industry, or if it turns up its nose at financing, that firm is at a competitive disadvantage. And as you pointed out at the top, deals with the largest law firms are now becoming fairly common. And you can see it with publicly announced transactions like the fairly recent $50 million portfolio deal that one funder made with Wilkie Farr and Gallagher. We have similar deals with multiple large AMLA 100 firms. So those firms are definitely participating in financing. So as Omni Bridgeway and, and you deal with these larger law firms, and obviously you have a, a lot of uh, respect for them and, and confidence, but of course, litigation is risky. That's the nature of it. How does Omni Bridgeway evaluate the risk of a case? I assume there's some due diligence process that you use to determine, yes, we'll finance that this case, but we won't finance another case. Give us a sense of what that looks like. Sure, and I apologize if this gets long-winded, but the due diligence process at Omni is very thorough. I think we really pride ourselves on both the comprehensiveness of that process and also, frankly, our speed at getting it done, which is typically 30 days from the day we sign a term sheet, uh, which is much shorter than many other funders who are smaller and may lack the sort of subject matter expertise that we have in several areas. You know, we invest in only a small percentage of cases presented to us. That's just true for most of the reputable funders. So when a, first, a case is first presented, one or two investment managers like myself will review the file that we receive, we'll get an NDA in place up front. And at that stage, we will apply several internal filters uh, to determine if the matter warrants further consideration, simple objective filters. Lots of cases get rejected at that stage. If a case is not rejected, then we'll do some additional vetting on our own. We'll have an in, internal discussion. We'll have initial discussions with the claimant and usually the law firm that's bringing us the opportunity. And if the matter still seems promising after that initial round of vetting, we will typically ask the claimant or law firm a series of questions and request some key documents for evaluation if we haven't already gotten them. If the matter remains a viable candidate for investment, meaning that it seems to have good prospects on the merits, the economics appear to make sense, and enforcement seems realistic, then we will do some formal financial modeling and we'll prepare a draft term sheet. That's a major step. Many cases, I dare say most cases, don't make it that far. After negotiation over the term sheet, if the parties agree on the key terms and both sign the document, then we enter into formal due diligence. This is the typically 30-day process that I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, this requires us to have an exclusivity period. 
during which time the claimant or the law firm we're funding is not working with any other funder. And due diligence really involves a deep and intense dive into the parties, the facts, and the law, and really all the surrounding contextual elements of the case. We often involve outside counsel at this stage to provide an objective opinion on certain key legal issues. And you know, while we're doing the due diligence, at the same time, we will prepare and negotiate our formal litigation funding agreement with the claimant or the law firm to maximize efficiency. And if due diligence then confirms that the case is one that we would recommend to our investment committee for investment, then we will prepare a memo to the committee, we'll present it at a real-time meeting, and if the investment committee then approves, we'll finalize the funding agreement and deploy capital. So there are a lot of steps in the due diligence process, some of which begin even before the formal due diligence period opens. We tend to evaluate risks through our own litigation experience and expertise, and also by adding in the capabilities of trusted outside lawyers to help us with an objective view. And there are no shortcuts to this process. It typically takes, as I mentioned, on the order of 30 days to fully diligence a case, sometimes more if it's complicated. We really need to have a high degree of confidence in the case on the merits and on the economics before we'll invest in it. And I think this is where it's invaluable that our team has such expertise in different areas, including people who are you know, partners at major law firms in antitrust, in intellectual property and patent law, international arbitration, insolvency, insurance recovery, claims against government entities, and judgment enforcement. That expertise is invaluable in helping us do initial screening of cases and also in monitoring and confirming the due diligence process. And as for the risk of a case, it comes in many forms. Different cases have different sorts of risk that they present more than others. For example, antitrust cases can have more duration risk because sometimes they can last a very long time before they're decided. Patent cases can have more merits risk because of their technical complexity and because of some recent federal circuit rulings that make challenges to the validity of an asserted patent more likely. International arbitrations can have more merits risk given the nature of non-U.S. law that often applies and sometimes enforcement risk, especially if they're against sovereigns. We take all these risks into account. On the less risky end, for example, are monetizations of judgments on appeal and you know, diversified portfolios of cases as opposed to single cases. So it sounds like an, a really extensive due diligence process. I'm curious as to what percentage of cases that come in the door actually get funded by Omni Bridgeway. And, you know, this, I think, will vary from year to year. But on average, we're funding between 5 and 10% of cases presented to us, typically closer to 5 than to 10. But a lot of, you know, as I say, many of those cases will fall away at the very early stages. Of the ones that make it further into the process, that are more substantial, that are typically being brought to us by larger companies or larger well-known law firms, those will have statistically a much better chance of success. Sure. Well, great. Well, I, I want to get into some of the thornier issues of litigation financing, like uh, disclosure. I know you mentioned that you require a non-disclosure agreement. I want to talk about uh, disclosure if required by, by courts or by the law and also uh, conflicts. But 
Before we do that, let's hear a message from our sponsors. Thank you to LexisNexis, creators of Lexis Plus, a legal research ecosystem that integrates legal research, practical guidance, and insightful legal analytics in a modern user interface. Visit LexisNexis.com forward slash Lexis Plus for more information. That's LexisNexis.com forward slash Lexis Plus. All right. Welcome back, everyone. And now let's get into those thorny issues. Let's talk about the uh, disclosure issues. I know you mentioned that OmniBridgeway typically requires an NDA, but as I understand it, there are some judges standing orders that require disclosure of litigation financing. And there also might be a proposed statewide law in New Jersey, as I read in, I believe it was litigation magazine. What do you see as this possibly having an effect on the use of litigation financing? Well, the NDA, just to point it out, the NDA that I talked about is really to prevent disclosure by us of any confidential information from the client for their confidence, and also to keep the client from disclosing our terms and processes to other funders. It's not really aimed at any law or court-imposed rule that might require funding of the existence of the relationship. But with respect to the impact of these potential laws or regulations, I frankly think it's too early to be certain what the impact will be. Some of these standing orders are limited to certain kinds of cases. It also appears on their face that they may be inconsistent with the federal rule of civil procedures discovery limits having to do with proportionality and relevance. But, you know, accepting them at face value, I would say that disclosure requirements are frankly a sign that litigation finance is a maturing and widely accepted part of the finance industry, which, of course, overall is quite heavily regulated. It's possible that disclosure requirements in certain courts or states, if they're adopted, could inhibit some parties from using financing for matters in those courts or states. But in other instances, claimants are eager to disclose these arrangements because they demonstrate to defendants that the claimants have the resources to litigate as needed and won't accept subpar settlements merely out of cost pressure. So funding can have this effect of putting David and Goliath, so to speak, on more equal footing, and disclosure puts Goliath on notice. Also, the commercial litigation finance industry has a trade association, uh, the International Litigation Finance Association, ILFA, uh, that has created some self-governance guidelines, which I think is another sign of a mature industry. Yeah. And I mentioned that article from Litigation Magazine. It was an article by Robert Shapiro, and he talks about how sort of litigation funding, it used to be people would look down on litigation funders because, I don't know, that it shouldn't be used, that it was somehow sleazy or something like that. And I I think you're right. I think it sounds like litigation funders are, are certainly becoming more mature and certainly the industry seems like it's becoming more mature where people, it, it, it's becoming much more accepted in the legal community. I would say that commercial litigation finance, again, distinct from consumer litigation finance, commercial litigation finance is entirely mainstream. I think that you would be hard pressed to find an AMLO 100 level firm that does not have a relationship with at least one reputable commercial litigation funder that has not had matters funded or at least had clients ask for funding 
it is quite prevalent among the largest law firms in the country, and it's very well established at this point in the U.S. And also, if you look at the people who are working at the largest commercial litigation finance firms, you'll see people who are very successful attorneys in private practice at well-known, well-regarded law firms who were partners at those firms for years before they decided to make the leap into the commercial litigation finance business. So I think that it certainly has shed whatever image it might have had many years ago of being questionable in some way for some reason and is not regarded that way anymore. You may remember that not that long ago, it was considered distasteful for lawyers to advertise. That's gone by the wayside. It was considered distasteful for lawyers ever to actually affirmatively seek out a client. The idea was that you would sit in your office and wait for the clients to come to you. That most assuredly is no longer the way any large law firm operates. So I think these mores and customs can change and evolve, and we've definitely seen that with litigation finance. Well, let's talk about the other uh, thorny issue, which is conflicts. And I, and I can just hear you know, some of our listeners yelling at their phone or their computer, you know, what happens, who has control of the litigation and, and the settlement process? What if these litigation funders want to come in and, you know, control what I do day to day as an attorney, or are they going to tell me or my client, you know, what to settle for and that sort of thing? So how, how do you, how does Omni Bridgeway handle those issues? Well, the answer is that no, Omni Bridgeway does not have that control. The claimant we're funding that ultimately is getting the funding has control of the litigation and has control of any settlement in consultation with their counsel. We don't have control. We have the right to be kept informed about the progress of the litigation and about the progress of settlement discussions. We can and certainly will make suggestions which can be taken or left, and we can advise clients on the financial outcome of a potential settlement when it comes up. But we don't control what the claimant and the counsel do. We don't make the legal decisions for them. We don't control whether or when they settle a matter. We think our consultations are part of the value-added proposition for clients and law firms, though. We're experienced lawyers who have seen and handled many cases of the types being funded so we can serve as advisors and sounding boards as a value add, which is something we're very proud of being able to do. And we see that as all part of the partnership that we strive to create with our clients. But it is a partnership, and we do not have control over litigation strategy or over settlement. Our involvement is being informed, uh, consulting with and advising the clients and the law firms as appropriate. But ultimately, the decisions are theirs. So walk me through what that looks like in terms of uh, disagreements. So if you have um, a client who wants to settle a case at a lower amount than, than I think Omni Bridgeway would, would, would want or would, would recommend, how does that conflict process work between Omni Bridgeway and the client? Is it just a matter of a conversation or is there something more formal? How does that work? I really wouldn't call it a conflict. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, an inflection point in the case where we have a discussion. We would probably do some financial modeling so the client can see exactly what the settlement would result in at that point in time. 
with respect to their ultimate recovery, our recovery, the law firm's recovery, to help them make the most informed decision possible. But again, in the end, you know, it's the client's, it's the client's decision to make. And we will have been partnered with and consulting with the client throughout the case. And, you know, generally we'll trust that they will make a decision that's rational and sensible for everyone. Great. Well, you know, we could go on and on on this topic. There's there's so much to discuss, uh, but I think we're at the end of our time for today. And Jason, just wanted to ask you if a lawyer or their client has a question about whether their case might be a good candidate for litigation financing. Um, what's the best way to reach out to Omni Bridgeway? Is that through you or is that through uh, someone else at the company? How, how What's the best contact for them? Sure. Look, I would invite anybody who's interested in learning more uh, to reach out to me by email you can reach me at jlevine, J-L-E-V-I-N-E, at omnibridgeway.com, all one word, omnibridgeway. Or you can call me at 646-677-4542. I'm happy to talk on the phone. Uh, you can learn more about the company and our team overall at our website, www.omnibridgeway.com. And if you really are interested, you could follow me or Omni on LinkedIn, where we post regularly on litigation finance topics. But otherwise, thank you very much for this opportunity, Dave. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Jason Levine, Investment Manager and Legal Counsel at Omni Bridgeway. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is an in-house litigator managing commercial litigation and products liability claims across the country and internationally. It's great to see you again, Daryl. Great to see you as well, Dave. Well, let's talk about mentorship. What's your quick tip for today? Yeah, today I wanted to talk about uh, basically how young lawyers can be good mentees. Uh, oftentimes we seek out mentors in the law and uh, we want to be able to build those relationships. And so I think the best way to do that is today is to offer tips on what it is to be a good mentee. Uh, I have three kind of broad tips that I would give to young lawyers to basically kind of establish that mentor-mentee relationship and how to make it fruitful. Uh, the first is to be a good listener. The second is to be open-minded. And the third is to accept feedback. So now I want to go back and kind of cap on each one of those and kind of talk about uh, what it means to put in those traits to be a good mentee. The first is being a good listener. Uh, I have this uh, kind of mantra that I've lived by uh, that really, I learned it from one of my mentees, I mean mentors, but I've also heard it from my grandparents as well. And it says that we have two ears and one mouth so we can listen twice as much as we speak. Uh, in doing that, I believe that in, in having an opportunity to listen to your mentors, it allows you to kind of maximize on the benefits that you can get by being a good listener. We have mentors that will share or impart wisdom with us. And if we just kind of close our mouths and actually take in the advice that they are imparting on us, it can allow you to be uh, great in the law. I would say as millennials, we more so focus on kind of trying to be independent. And, and while independence is a great thing, uh, we want to make sure that we are a sponge also, that we're ready to kind of soak up any advice that mentors may be able to provide to us so that we can kind of have a good profession or, or be good lawyers in the profession. You want to be able to take that information, but also use it at your own peril. Uh, I would say that oftentimes mentors will share stories of, of times when they were practicing as young lawyers and often give advice. 
You can also learn from courtroom best practices from mentors to kind of tell you how to navigate the courtroom when you get into the profession, when you start practicing. But also another tip that can be taken away from your mentor through kind of just being a good listener is business development strategies. Uh, As we get more senior in our careers and we start to try to develop business, we want to make sure that we have those best practices under our wings so that we can utilize them as we enter out into the profession to try to, you know, build books of business and try to make partner. Or if you're going into in-house, you want to be able to kind of take in strategies that can be developed as when you're looking for your outside counsel. So those are things that can be uh, beneficial when you listen to your mentor and be that good listener. The next is that you want to be open-minded. I would say that you want to be receptive to ideas uh, that will fuel your growth from your mentors. And, And we have to realize that mentors have been around before us and we want to make sure that we're doing things that can fuel our growth as young lawyers in the profession. You want to be ready to kind of welcome advice uh, from the more seasoned lawyers. Again, they've done this. They've been around. They have kind of, you know, they have their war stories and their war wounds. And so as, as young lawyers, you want to be able to take in that information so that you can maybe avoid some issues that they may have focused uh, or, or kind of I guess, encountered in their past practices, you want to keep in mind that what works for one doesn't always work for another. So that's kind of where I went to. And I talked about using your your own peril to kind of understand, you know, what works for you. So I, I would say, you know, you can take in the advice from your mentor, but you don't have to always use it. So just look to, you know, just be that listener, like I said before, and be able to kind of gather yourself in and, and understand that what works for one doesn't work for others. Uh, you want to assess the guidance that they provide to determine, you know, if and how to adapt to the guidance that you're receiving from a mentor to produce a result that is best for your circumstances. Obviously, you want to be able to, you know, take ownership of your own career. But I think that, you know, having a mentor and listening and then being open minded will allow you to to be able to be successful in your career and, and do things that work for you. Uh, the next one is that you want to, you know, accept feedback. Oftentimes, we like to get the praise from our bosses in the profession or other individuals, you know, once they see that you're doing good work, you want to receive that praise. But I would say and kind of encourage young lawyers to also be receptive and and be able to accept constructive criticism that your mentors may be able to provide to you and use it to the best advantage that you can to kind of help yourself grow. Don't, you know, get upset when you get that constructive criticism. You want to make sure that you're listening and not being defensive and that you can take in that information, uh, you know, as, as some people say, use it uh, as a grain or take it as a grain of salt and kind of grow from that. And so I would say, you know, the three things that you do when you accept feedback is you want to listen, you want to learn from it and you want to help yourself to grow. So that's kind of what I would say about, you know, accepting your the feedback. I've, I've learned a lot from mentors that I've have in my life. And, and so there are some things that I've replicated, you know, and some that I have not and some things that I've also taken and put my own spin on it. And so that's what I encourage young lawyers to do uh, is to kind of put your own spin on the uh, advice that you receive from your mentors. And so. I want to go in and kind of do a recap again of of the three steps that I would say that would allow you to be a good mentee is to be a good listener, be open minded and accept feedback. 
my advice that I would give to young lawyers now is to not be afraid to make mistakes. Do not be afraid to ask questions and not do not be afraid to take advice. My last question I kind of will leave all of the listeners with as young lawyers is, will you be open and ready for change or will you remain complacent as your colleagues pass you by? Uh, it is my hope that you will go with the former and be a winning mentee. And so I hope these tips are will be able to help you in your career and will take you far by just listening, being open-minded, and accepting the feedback. Thanks, Dave. Great tips, Daryl. Thank you so much. Having a mentor is so important, especially someone who will give you honest feedback and perspective. Being a great mentee will really facilitate that relationship. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, hey, I appreciate it. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like me to answer in an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social, and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section. And also to our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thanks, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to our co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.